0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kinway, Hefe, Zuman, Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermaster, Heather. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time I did all of you a terrible disservice. I named that episode That Perfidious Pirate, and I failed to give any good reason for using a word like perfidious. When I told you that the British archives were rife with tales of John Ward in the months following the capture of the Rainiera Isoderina, I wasn't exaggerating. In fact, I might have downplayed it a bit. There was not a single letter or report or address from the English ambassador to Venice, nor the Venetian ambassador to London that failed to mention Jack Ward, even a year more after the event. Even when they became more concerned with other matters, every one of those communiques would end with an update about John Ward, or at least someone in his growing cabal of associates. So, for example, on 5 December 1607, Zorzi Gwistinian, the Venetian ambassador to England, informed the Privy Council, quote, "'A few days ago I heard from a good source that there was an English ship landing in Tunis with certain goods plundered from the Sodorina. Her intention was to make for Flanders to dispose of her cargo the more safely.' On the receipt of this news, I took such steps with the Lord High Admiral that as the ship was pushing up the channel, she was seized and taken into port where she is now lying. It seems that the information was correct, and her crew declare that her cargo consists of salt, indigo, and other goods. I hope not only to recover the interests of the injured parties, but also to deprive that perfidious pirate of a great incentive to continue his diabolical designs." I should have shared that last time. I love that quote. But that's the sort of information that was flowing constantly between Venice and England. And it wasn't just between those two countries. England and the Ottoman court were constantly arguing about whose responsibility it was to deal with the problem of Barbary pirates. They're English, said the sultan, but it's an Ottoman port, said the king, and it just went on and on and on. Spain and Sicily and Tuscany all got in on the discussion, But as time went on, the Dutch joined in more and more. Eventually, they were involved in more of the discussion than anyone else, except for England, and that's because it became clear that Dutch pirates were flocking to follow John Ward's example in the Mediterranean. This is Episode 88, Diabolical Designs. Today we're going to talk about two other pirates that followed to sail from Barbary in the wake of Captain Jack Ward. It's not exactly clear that they were following him. I mean, they did come to Barbary after John Ward, but they may not have exactly heard about Ward and his capture of the Soterina and immediately decided to follow in his footsteps. In one case, the steps that led this pirate to Barbary may have been very similar to Ward's, but in the other case, the events that brought him to Barbary were wildly different. But actually that one, Ward might actually have influenced him. But before we begin, there is something that I want to bring up about these two stories, something that I want to point out. There is a very real discrepancy in the stories of these two pirates in, well, more than one way. But it comes down at its center to class and those who wrote history in the 1600s. Way back when we talked about And You Le and women in piracy, during the buccaneering era at least, we talked a bit about who writes history. It was old, white men of privilege, and in that case, what concerned us about that fact was that they were men writing about men's experiences, and they left women underrepresented in the pages of history. And that's a problem in our current story as well. One that I've really had trouble overcoming. It might even be a worse problem than it was in the buccaneering era, and certainly in the Golden Age. I've been looking for women to talk about in this story, and I can't find any. Jack Ward had a wife back in England, and he reportedly sent her money, but nobody knows her name. She's just another nameless fisherman's wife abandoned by her husband. The story of piracy is filled with women like her, and we'll never know anything about them. There are women in the harems, but that's not exactly an inspiring story, and there will be a few women in the near future that I am going to talk about in this story. Not pirates, but women who survived attacks by Barbary pirates and the enslavement that followed. And then there were women who organized and agitated and facilitated the release of thousands of slaves. Those stories are among the most amazing and inspirational I've heard in the story of piracy, but we're not talking about them today. The reason I brought up this question of who writes history is because those same old privileged men that were ignoring women were ignoring other disenfranchised people as well. And when I talk about privilege here, I'm not talking about what we might consider it today, white privilege or male privilege. They were certainly all white and male and all benefited from the privilege that that gave them in England, but there was something more. They had the privilege of Well, education, first of all. That's central to the whole thing. But I'm talking about wealth. The historian and political scientist and socialist activist Michael Parenti said in a speech he gave about Julius Caesar, quote,
0: I want to say something about history first. Because our images of the past are created largely by history's winners. The voices of the losers are muted or, if they come to us, they are through very carefully tuned filters. The writing of history has long been a privileged calling undertaken within the church, the royal court, the affluent townhouse, the government agency, the university, and the corporate-funded foundation. Edward Gibbon, author of that monumental work, the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire back in the late 18th century, was himself perfectly aware of the class realities behind the writing of history. He talked about how history had to be written by gentlemen, isn't that interesting? Gentlemen who had the means, the leisure, to pursue such a calling, in his words, Wretched would be the work of those whose scholarly efforts, whose daily efforts, are stimulated by daily hunger. Gibbon himself produced what I would call Gentleman's History, a genre heavily imbued with an upper-class ideological perspective.
1: Now, Parenti is a historian with a clear bias and a political outlook. He's similar to Howard Zinn in a lot of ways. There's an element of looking for the facts that support his beliefs, and oftentimes they actually do so. But I'm not always on board with his analysis of history, nor his politics, but all the same, in this respect, I agree with him. Remember last time when we talked about the wealthy patrons that were necessary to get anything published? Well, they weren't about to finance a book that would make their class look bad. So keep in mind the question of, the class and the outlook and the biases of those who were writing history when I talk about these next two pirates. The first one of these two in question was a man named Sir Francis Verney. Now, Sir Francis reminds me a lot of Steed Bonnet, one of Blackbeard's associates. Neither of them were very good pirates, but they hitched their names to much better captains and therefore we remember them. Sir Francis was wholly unremarkable for his piracy, but he was well-known, and he's actually one of the more interesting characters operating out of Barbary during these first years of the 17th century. Francis Varney was born in 1584 at Pendley Manor in Ting, Hertfordshire, England. He was the son of Sir Edmund Varney and a woman named Audrey Garner. His name, the Varney name, was old and distinguished, they were landed nobility, landlords going back generations deep into feudal England. Now, when Francis was only four, his mother died. His father remarried to a woman named Lady Mary Blakeney. Now, Lady Mary was herself a powerful noblewoman with children and estates of her own. Sir Edmund Verney was married three times in all, and he had many children, Through his father's marriages, young Francis had at least seven familial connections to the courts of the Tudor dynasty of England and the Stuart dynasty in Scotland. Now, Francis would never have actually been in line for the throne himself. Hundreds of people would have had to die first, and well before he made his way to the throne, the nobility of England would have looked outside the country. But Lady Mary was described as a, quote, masterful woman, and, well, i hate to fall into the evil stepmother trope here but this one here probably actually kind of fits see when he was still very young francis was deeded a significant parcel of land by his uncle sir edmund's brother now his uncle died and francis received that land before lady mary entered the picture however Lady Mary convinced her husband, Sir Edmund Verney, to overwrite his brother's last will and testament to split the land between Francis and his new, younger half-brother, the son of Sir Edmund and Lady Mary. And this was no small feat, he didn't just have to scratch out a few lines, he had to go to Parliament and get a special act to get this done. And then, in a move that just seems comically calculated to secure her own hold on the rest of the land, that belonged to Francis, I mean, Lady Mary and Sir Edmund arranged a marriage between Francis and his significantly older stepsister, Ursula. That's Lady Mary's daughter from a previous marriage. Francis was only 15 at the time. And then, less than a year later, when Francis was still only 16, still a minor, and yet married, his father died. And Lady Mary, well i ain't saying she's a gold digger but she did marry an older man and convince him to go before parliament to secure her dead brother-in-law's land for her two children francis was still a minor here he had no control over his money or his estates or his destiny he was unable to argue when his stepmother walked in did what she wanted to with it and then packed him off to private school imagine how he would have felt In that carriage ride with only a trunk full of his own clothes to keep him company being driven from his home mere months after the death of his father he was sir edmund's eldest son and yet here he was forced from a home that should have been his by rights by his stepmother slash mother-in-law How would he feel about her? I mean, that woman came in, stole half of the land that he owned by giving it to his younger half-brother. Oh, and his younger half-brother's name? Edmund, his father's name. Then Lady Mary forced him to marry an older woman, his stepsister, which effectively stole the rest of his land. See, that half that still belonged to Francis now, in part, belonged to his wife and his stepmother, who was his legal guardian. Now, he was on the way to a strange town and a strange school while a family of strangers that called themselves his wife and mother and brother sat in his father's home getting rich off of the land. How would that make you feel? Do you think perhaps you would consider an act of Shakespearean tragic violence? Now, as soon as Francis reached his majority, he made three major changes. First, he was knighted at the Tower of London and officially became Sir Francis. Second, he bought a house in town, far from his wife and far from his mother-in-law. Third, he legally separated from his wife. He agreed to pay her a yearly stipend of £50. This move probably felt pretty good, but it proved to be his undoing. See, after separating from his wife, he took his case before Parliament. He wanted his land back. He argued that his wife and his mother-in-law had stolen his lands, and it was really kind of a strong case. The problem comes, well, first of all, all of his family's lawyers who would have normally represented him, well, they were all paid by Lady Mary. And then, when he separated legally from his wife, that gave her some claim over the land. So Parliament ruled in Lady Mary's favor, and Sir Francis Verney lost that parcel of land. Now, he had a few other holdings, although less significant. He hadn't received nearly as much from his father as he had expected, mostly because his father had rewritten the will. But he did have those other parcels, so he sold them. He sold his house in London as well, nearly all of his worldly possessions. According to family legend, he kept only a few changes of clothes, a purse full of coin, and his father's sword. With the money that he had in his pocket, he booked passage on a ship. And isn't that just a great origin story for a gentleman pirate? Couldn't you see Sir Francis Verney leading a mutiny, taking his ship to the West Indies and gathering a crew? He might dress according to his station, as a gentleman, and then shipwreck outside an island called Never Never Land, where he loses a hand and vows revenge upon Peter Pan. I mean, Black Sails had a much better origin story for Captain Flint, but I could see something like this story working as well for any of the high Golden Age pirates, really. But that wouldn't really be plausible for a few decades yet. The taking his ship to the West Indies, I mean. When Sir Francis left England and his estranged wife, sister, and her mother behind, most of the world was still out of the question for an Englishman. Instead, Sir Francis went to Morocco. He had family there, see, a man named Captain John Gifford and then his lieutenant, Philip Gifford. The Giffords were commanders in a combined English and Dutch mercenary force. That mercenary force was fighting in Morocco on behalf of the Sultan, the rightful Sultan, as they saw it, or at least as his coin convinced them to see it, and Sir Francis joined up with them. And now... Well, here's where things start to get complicated. The sultan for which they were fighting was a Berber national. They were fighting against a rebellion begun by Arab princes in the south of Morocco that were exiles from the Caliphate of Cordoba. Does any of this sound familiar? It's all part of that story of the Moroccan Sephardi pirate Samuel Palash. Remember, the Moroccan smuggler turned pirate turned spy in King Philip II's court chased out of Madrid by the Inquisition and fighting his way to freedom, he was an agent of that same sultan for which the Giffords and now Sir Francis were fighting. Currently, he was engaged in high diplomatic talks with the Dutch Republic. And these Englishmen were working against Ottoman influence in Morocco. Now, I'm not saying that Samuel Palash organized these Dutch and English mercenaries to help his sultan because I don't have any evidence that he did so. But I'm not saying it didn't happen either, but things are about to get even more complicated. John and Philip Gifford were relatives of Sir Francis, but they had another relative operating in North Africa, and he was also working against Ottoman influence in the region. His name was Richard Gifford, and we've talked about him before. He was that man that ingratiated himself with the Pasha of Algiers and then took a contract from the... Duke of Tuscany, to burn the entire fleet of Algiers at anchor in the harbor there. He was that Englishman that caused so much trouble for John Ward before he arrived in Barbary. Did you follow all of that? Sir Francis Verney was working for his relatives, all of whom were employed by a Dutch and English mercenary company employed by the Moroccan Sultan. The Sultan was working closely with Samuel Palache, noted pirate, and through him to the Dutch Republic. All of them were working on some level against the Ottoman Empire, or at least against Turkish and Arabian influence. And then think about the Janissaries over in Tunis, led by Uthman Dei, who were in open rebellion against their Ottoman Sultan. They were encouraging corsairs and piracy to, well, to serve as a de facto navy and to bring in funds. Now... I'm not saying that the Dutch Republic and the Moroccan Sultanate were secretly conspiring through their agent Samuel Palash to encourage the Barbary Corsairs, which would destabilize Ottoman and Spanish and Italian hegemony in the region, all while empowering the Dutch and the Moroccans to nibble at the Spanish and Ottoman empires. I'm not saying that the Gifford family, including Sir Francis Verney, were elbow-deep in the said conspiracy, working extranationally to enrich themselves in their overseas holdings at the expense of Spain. I'm sure it's all merely a coincidence. I'm sure it's merely coincidence that the Giffords served in the Netherlands during the Dutch Revolt, and that they would go on to be key players in the expansion of Dutch interests in the East Indies at the expense of Portugal and Spain. I'm not saying that any of it is connected. I don't have any documentation to back that up. And I am certainly not, once again, delving into 400-year-old conspiracy theories, because that would be the action of a crazy person. And I'm not crazy... But I will, once again, quote Michael Parenti. In that same speech about Julius Caesar, he said, quote,
0: One eminent 20th century British historian, Cyril Robinson, offers the familiar and fanciful notion of an empire achieved stochastically. Stochasticism is the theory that all things happen by chance, without deliberate intent by the actors above, without conscious design, I quote Robinson, it was perhaps almost as true of Rome as of Great Britain that she acquired her world domination in a fit of absence of mind. Yeah, right. Again, a fairy tale image. An imperialism without imperialists. Isn't that remarkable? Well, what do you have, a conspiracy theory? You think they actually built this empire? planned and went out and did things and calculated and raised armies and decided that was a profitable area to conquer? You think they actually thought about that? It was absent-minded.
1: And I'm not saying that Uthman Day and the Janissaries and Jack Ward and Sir Francis were all caught up in this hypothetical conspiracy. I'm just relaying historical data and pointing out the coincidences I see. I'm just asking questions here. And really, in reality, most of the actors present were probably just taking advantage of the situation that presented itself. But if there were a vast international conspiracy involving pirates to destabilize an empire and a region, well, it wouldn't be the first time, and it certainly wouldn't be the last. English leaders in that mercenary company would both be killed in a skirmish in the desert with the Arab forces against which they were fighting. Verney family tradition tells us that it was at this time that Sir Francis met with that other family member, Richard Gifford, to learn about seafaring and privateering and life in Barbary. And that, well, that story makes sense. It adds a certain dramatic flair to the whole thing and it ties the tale up nicely. So naturally, it's not true. As Adrian Tenniswood points out, Richard Gifford was in a Florentine jail between 1607 and 1610. But there, if that's not what happened, we lose touch with Francis Verney for a while. But if you need more circumstantial evidence to support a claim that I am absolutely not making about an international conspiracy between the Netherlands and Morocco, and eventually England and Barbary, You don't need to look any further than our next major player. He was born sometime around 1579 in the Netherlands. Now, he may have been born in Dordrecht in Holland, or he may have been from a place called Vlissingen, what the English called Flushing. There are differing accounts about the date and the place of his birth. His name is even more complicated. His real name was probably Sijemen Danziger, but... The English among his crew is often called him Simon Dancer, and history best remembers him as Simon Danziker, so that's what we're going to go with. His early life is much less defined than that of Sir Francis, at least in English sources. His story is not dissimilar to that of John Ward, though. He was a privateer during the war with Spain. He was fighting for the Dutch rather than the English, but they were on the same side, Now, he wasn't yet born when William the Silent sent the Z-Rovers a-roving, but serving on board a privateer vessel would have appealed to a young, ambitious, patriotic Dutchman. He was Protestant, a Calvinist probably, and he earned his first defeat at sea, I don't believe he was yet a commander, at the hands of Irish Catholic pirates. And when I say Irish pirates, I mean the navy of the revolutionary forces in Northern Ireland that fought the Nine Years' War at sea. And when I talk about the Irish Revolutionary Navy, I'm talking about the force that was commanded and in many ways built by a woman named Grace O'Malley. Now, by the time Danziker would have been captured, Grace O'Malley had been retired from the sea for some time. So we can banish the images of her bright red locks streaming in the wind brandishing her cutlass over a captured Simon Danziker. And in fact she might have actually been dead by the time Simon was captured. We don't know exactly when he was captured nor do we know exactly when Grace O'Malley died. But it was those same pirates and... well, really pirates isn't a word you should use here. I'm sure that Grace O'Malley would have taken great offense at it. They were a revolutionary navy. The only people who considered them pirates were the English against whom they were fighting. It was that Irish Revolutionary Navy, which Grace O'Malley had been so integral in creating and building up, it was those men that captured Simon Danziker and his crewmates. In fact, very likely sons and or brothers of Grace O'Malley were there. Now, we know virtually nothing else about the early life of Simon Danziker or his days as a Dutch privateer. We don't even know how he escaped the irish pirate navy he was probably freed when the war ended which would have been only a few months after he was captured but we still don't know the next time that Simon danziker pops up on the historical radar is when he moved to Marseille in france the reason he does pop up is because he married the governor's daughter now this kind of suggests to me Well, first of all, it suggests that he might not actually have been Dutch, or maybe the records are somewhat confused here, but more on that later. But it also suggests that he may have been a man of some standing. He would have been about 27 years old right now, and probably an officer at this point. I mean, not just any pirate fresh off the boat from the Netherlands gets to marry the governor's daughter, right? But then he ran into some trouble there in Marseille. Exactly what the trouble is we don't know. Adrian Tenniswood writes that he quote quarreled with the authorities, who presumably included his father in law. In sixteen oh seven he stole a ship in Marseille harbour, used her to take another, and set out to sell his prizes in Algiers. Now there is another account which I will relate in a moment, but That's basically all we have that is verifiable about Simon Danziker's Road to Barbary. At least that's all that I have in English. There are Dutch and even Arabic sources, but they cost a fortune and are hard to come by even if you can afford them. But here's why I started out today talking about wealth and privilege in historical writing. We have this fascinating, emotionally engaging, in-depth origin story about Sir Francis Verney on the one hand... And even the rest of his tale, at least parts of it, are equally fascinating. But Francis Verney was a terrible pirate. But then on the other hand, Simon Danziker. We know very little about him, at least until he turned pirate and all of a sudden everyone was very interested in him. But we don't know his name, his place of birth, his date of birth. We don't know anything about his service in the Dutch Revolt. We don't know his rank, if he had one. Honestly, it's questionable that he ever actually married any governor's daughter. That comes from a 400-year-old piece of hearsay that just has been repeated often enough that it's become historical fact. But Simon Danziker, of whom we know virtually nothing in his early life, was a fantastic pirate, an amazing pirate even. He arrived in Algiers in late 1608... And by summer of 1609, he had taken over 29 ships, ranging from Spain and England and France and even the Netherlands. Jack Ward did well for himself, but not 29 ships in a few short months well. Now, none of the prizes taken by Simon Danziker were anywhere near as rich as the Riniere e or even the likes of the Ruby. But Simon Danziker always played second fiddle, to John Ward at least. Perhaps that's just national bias. For example, in a true and certain report of the beginning proceedings, overthrows, and now present estate of Captain Ward and Danziker, we get pages and pages and pages devoted to Ward and his many exploits. And then, at the very end, a single paragraph about Simon Danziker, and the same rings true, to differing levels of effect, on any of the contemporary works devoted to those two pirates. The British archives? Danziker doesn't get a single mention. And I mean, that makes sense. He wasn't British. He was Dutch, so why would the English be writing about him? But what that doesn't account for is Sir Francis Verney. Verney was also English, so there could be similar reasons, but both Venice and France and the reports of their agents in Barbary back to people in Venice and Paris, well, they seemed to care a lot more about Sir Francis, an absolutely abysmal pirate, than one of the most successful pirates of his age, a man who was arguably more successful than John Ward. And I would argue here that this is because of class bias. They were more interested in telling the stories of the gentry because they related more closely to those stories. They called him a pirate of, quote, the most noble blood, end quote, and they wrote about his trials and tribulations at length, almost sympathetically. And then Danziker? He was billed by those same agents as one of Ward's lieutenants, just an underling. And then, when Danziker split from Ward, according to these agents, it was over a petty argument over a small amount of their spoils, you know, the sort of argument that poor people partake in. And... All of that is just nonsense. Danziker was never Ward's lieutenant. Tunis was never his port of call. He never worked for Uthman Day. It wasn't just the English that were painting Danziker as a lesser pirate than John Ward and Sir Francis Fernie, the Venetians, the Dutch, even the Spanish and the Ottomans to some extent, but I think the facts will show that he was a far better pirate than anyone else operating at the time. As a further piece of evidence of class bias in older, piratical historical texts, I'd like to read to you from The History of Piracy by Philip Gose, published in 1932. Now, Philip Gose wasn't landed gentry. This was 1932, there weren't many of them left. He was the grandson of a famous naturalist, though, the son of a famous poet, and himself a well-known academic. All of them had a sir before their name, and, to be fair, they all earned it. All of their works were amazing. But they were not the sort of stock from which men like Ward and Danziker came. Gose wrote, quote, found the temptations of that lively port too much for him. Having spent all his money, he was forced to sell his ship and spend the proceeds of that as well. Thus deprived, he collected a few of the riffraff of the port, stole a small boat, and went out on the account. End quote. And that's not all necessarily incorrect. He was probably in some form of financial straits. That's likely what got him into trouble with the law in the first place, but we can't trust Philip Ghost because so much of the other information he provides is verifiably incorrect. And then... See how Ghost paints him in the light of drunken debauch? When he says temptations of the port, what he means is wine and women. His crew were all riffraff. And, you know, they probably were riffraff, to be fair. But that ignores the crippling taxes and lingering feudal system that was emplaced upon them, and the thousands of them that had fathers lying dead in foreign soil for some king's war somewhere. So my goal is to try to tell the story of Simon Danziker as best as I can, with the limited sources I have to give him an honest and fair account. He arrived in Algiers shortly after the capture of the Soderina, around the same time that Verney arrived in Barbary. It's actually possible that Sir Francis and Danziker were in Algiers at the same time. It likely would have been the first major port either of them reached after leaving the Strait of Gibraltar. But if Sir Francis were in the company of his cousin Richard Gifford, even though he was in jail at the time, they would have been unlikely to stop off in Algiers. Gifford still had an Algerian price on his head. But if, on the other hand, Verney was there, he likely wouldn't have stayed anyway. He probably would have received the same reception that the Pasha gave John Ward and the other Englishmen with him. Not necessarily a rest, but not a welcoming hand either. But Zyman Danziker wasn't English, and the Pasha was willing to let him stay. Now, exactly what his role was there in Algiers is up for debate, at least at first. He almost certainly pirated around for a while, taking those 29 ships and selling his goods in Algiers. As a corsair, who was essentially a privateer, he would have given the Pasha his cut, so... The Pasha made money, and Captain Danziker was able to ingratiate himself into the culture of Algiers. Now, Danziker would go on to become for much more famous acts of piracy. Some of those would garner as much attention, even in England, as Ward and the Rainiera Isoderina. They would make him an arch-pirate alongside Captain Ward. They would even potentially make him a greater threat he would leave the title of arch-pirate behind and become the devil captain of the Mediterranean. And we're going to talk about all of that in the days to come. It's a fascinating story, but for now, I want to look at the slightly less exciting but significantly more influential aspect of Simon Danziker's time in Algiers. Now, there's no big battle or exciting conclusion, which I like to do when possible, But, as I said, I want to give him a fair and honest accounting. Once Danziker was established in Algiers, he presented himself to the Pasha and offered him his service. This would have been probably after taking those twenty-nine ships. Now, Algiers was still under Ottoman control, unlike Tunis, and they had a kind of revolving door policy for the Pashas to keep them from gaining too much power. Pashas would serve for a term of a year occasionally the sultan would extend their term for an additional year up to four years but no longer than that there was a janissary garrison there in algiers and frankly he probably presented himself to them as well but the pasha's name was redwan now there was a powerful family in the ottoman empire called the ridwan dynasty they served as pashas and baylor bays and even viziers to the sultan at different times their influence was vast, everywhere from Egypt to Jerusalem and the Levant to Turkey, and it lasted for several generations. Now, this Pasha Redwan may have been a member of their clan, or he may just have a similar name. If he was a member of the Ridwan clan, he was not a famous member of it. Regardless, the Pasha Redwan knew his time as Pasha was growing short. He wanted something that would impress the sultan, and what he had was Simon Danziker. The service that Simon offered Redwan was to teach his shipwrights how to build ships that would match even the best ship in Europe. It would take time to do so, but they could do it. See, Danziker has been given credit for modernizing the navy of Algiers, and he likely deserves that credit, if not all of it, at least most of it. He was Dutch, after all, and in sixteen oh eight the Dutch were building the best ships in the world. Now, the Ottomans had been transitioning from oar power to sail power for a while now. The Battle of Lepanto showed them that the galleys were not suitable warships in the age of sail and gunpowder, and they did have some fairly decent ships. The best of these was the Dow. The Dow was actually A wide variety of ships, but they were usually open-decked, single-masted ships with a settee or latine rigging. That's a triangular sail. Now, the Dow was fast, and it worked well for coastal trade and for corsairs in most situations. But they weren't strong ships. They weren't powerful like the big European ships. They couldn't hold many guns on board, and they could not endure hits like a European ship could. But Simon Danziker was going to change all of that he introduced to Algiers the round ship. Now, there are two defining characteristics to the round ship. First, square-rigged sails. Now, the Sephardi exiles had already brought the square rig into Turkey and Barbary, and they were occasionally put into use on dows, but more frequently on galleys, and they were put to some great successes, but by the 1600s, even a square-rigged galley wasn't good enough. But the second defining characteristic of the round ship is the hull. Most medieval ships were what they called clinker-built. That is, every timber used in building the hull was first shaped and then put together in a slightly overlapping pattern. This was efficient, it was cheap to build, and it was waterproof. I mean, you can look at a Viking longship if you want to see what this looks like. But Europeans had begun building their hulls in what they called a caravel build. The first of these ships was, not surprisingly, the caravel designed by Portugal in the 14th century. What made a caravel build different is that the planks making up the hull didn't overlap. They were perfectly fitted into a longitudinal seam. That meant their hulls were smooth. You can see the advantages immediately. A smooth hull would be vastly more hydrodynamic than a jagged hull, so they were faster. They used about half as much timber to build them, since they didn't overlap, so they were lighter on the water. And that means less water was displaced, which means that they could usually rely solely on sail power. It took a lot less power for one of these caravel-built ships to move. But here's the big stuff that might not jump out at you, at least it didn't jump out to me. First of all, since they were perfectly fitted, smooth hulls, one was able to fit two or three layers of hull on one of these ships. You couldn't do that with a jagged hull. And with a layered hull, cannonballs would just bounce right off, at least until cannons would get better. The caravel-built ships were significantly more structurally sound. They used a sort of tension to hold together, so they weren't brittle like the clankers. That means that they could... Well, they could do three things. First, they could have multiple decks. That meant more guns and more cargo, and that's a big win. Second, they could accommodate more than one mast on board without losing any of the strength of the hull. The Dow had only one mast on nearly all of their designs. There were a few multi-masted galleys, but those were a different build entirely, and something that really wasn't done much since the fall of the Byzantine Empire. But obviously, more masts mean more sails, which means an even faster ship that can use more of that wind power to cut through the waves. So they were faster, they were lighter, and they could hold many more guns. But then third, and this one is a much bigger deal than I would ever have thought, I actually would never have thought about this at all. These caravel-built ships could actually twist a little bit in the middle. That means that they were capable of sudden changes in direction without damaging the hull. That made them extremely maneuverable. And what's more, it allowed ships built this way to brave the tempests and the waves of the high seas. Nearly all of the ships that have ever concerned us on this show, the ships of Henry the Navigator when he explored Africa and the Atlantic Ocean, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, they were all caravel-built. All of the ships that the pirates used during the buccaneering age, from Henry Morgan to Lolo Ney, caravel-built ships, except when they had to build a small vessel out of rough materials, then it was much more economic to build one in an older style. But it was those ships that allowed Europe to become the dominant sea power in the world for hundreds of years. That ship design was responsible for everything exploration and colonization for trade, at least the domination of trade by Europe, for imperialism and the naval arms race that lasted for centuries, not to mention pirates and piracy as we know and love them. It's responsible for this show. And Simon Danseker, a Dutchman, brought that technology to the Muslim world, to Algiers. He taught their shipwrights how to build those ships, but he did more than that. He taught them how to train a new generation of shipwrights. He oversaw the construction of new tools and shipyards. He targeted ships as a pirate that were carrying lumber and guns to further his aims here. He ordered trees planted outside the city. They had to build a fairly extensive aqueduct system to use these trees, but it was absolutely worth it. Now, this was all a lengthy process. This took Years and years before they had a fully fledged navy, but in under a year, Simon Danziker, a Dutchman, had come to Algiers, constructed at least half a dozen large, powerful warships, men of war, essentially, and he was the only captain in Algiers that knew how to properly utilize them. That meant that he was not only the captain of his ship, he was the admiral of all six ships, and as they were the most powerful ships in the Algerian navy, he was the admiral. Of the Algerian fleet. But every good admiral knows that you have to put new ships and new sailors through their paces. You have to be sure that the ships won't leak and sink, you have to be sure that the sailors will know what they're doing, and obviously you can't just let your new ships rot their import. So next time, we're going to discuss exactly what Admiral Danziger did with his brand new navy. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank also everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has given us a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever it is you listen to the show. Everybody who has told somebody about the show, either in real life or on social media. And everybody who has become a patron on Patreon. Without all of you, I couldn't do this. So thank you. If you're interested in hearing that speech that I played a couple of clips from today by Michael Parenti about Julius Caesar, I certainly suggest you listen to it. You can find it on YouTube. It's called The Death of Julius Caesar by Michael Parenti. But I'd like to warn you that he does have that political bias, and I don't think that everything he says in there should be taken at face value. Take it all with a grain of salt and imbibe as much more Roman history as possible. I would suggest, first of all, the History of Rome podcast by Mike Duncan, and while you're at it, why not read his book, The Storm Before the Storm, about the civil war that preceded Julius Caesar in that civil war. But you should also check out some other sources. If you'd like to know what Julius Caesar wants you to think about his policies, and not just what Michael Parenti or Mike Duncan want you to, he has his journals out there. They were propaganda, but they're worth taking a look at, or at least listening to or reading about them and what he says in them. And I would also suggest the book Rubicon, and of course, Dan Carlin's series, Death Throes of the Republic. Rome and Roman history, even the late Republic, even just the story of Julius Caesar, is a huge topic. And that's, at best, a good place to start. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have yet to check them out, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.